Welcome to the final episode on this season of the Disciple Makers podcast. We've really enjoyed going on this podcasting journey with each of you this summer and look forward to producing another season for you next summer. As we've recorded the previous 20 episodes and talked about a variety of topics, I think the theme that runs through them all is the need for us to think critically and intentionally about every area of life and what it means for these areas to be under the Lordship of Christ. As we start the semester, we thought it would be a perfect time to talk about how our majors, classes, and studies also fall under the Lordship of Christ. To talk about this, we are joined by Byron Borger, who runs a bookstore called Hearts and Minds that focuses on helping students and others do just that. We were blown away by Byron's passion and excitement for this topic and walked away from our conversation with full hearts and minds. We hope you have a similar experience as you listen and soak up the wisdom he has to share. He paints a beautiful picture of what it looks like to not just be a Christian that studies a specific topic or has a specific career, but what it looks like to fully integrate and intertwine our fields of study with our faith in Jesus and use that as a launching pad to reverse the curse of the fall, build God's kingdom, and share the gospel. So join us as we discuss these things and more with Byron on the Disciple Makers podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. My name is Caleb Olszewski, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Sarah Evans. Hi, guys. Today, we're joined by a special guest, Byron Borger, who was connected with us through one of our staff, Uh, but he doesn't work for Disciple Makers, and we're super happy for him to join us today. We're going to be talking about kind of how to use our majors um, to fulfill God's mission and, and how just all areas of our life come under the Lordship of Christ. But thanks so much for joining us today, Byron. It's great to be here. I really appreciate what you're doing, and I'm glad there's college students listening. So yeah, it's fun. It's fun to be here. Thanks. So I wanted to start us off, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and what gets you excited about this topic. Um, It's a long story how I got into all this stuff, but the short version uh, of who we are is my wife and I own a bookstore. It's called Hearts and Minds, an independent bookstore, one of the more... um, legendary uh, Christian bookstores uh, on the East Coast. We've been here about 40 years in a small town called Dallas Town, which is just below York. So we're about an hour south of Harrisburg and have had this independent bookstore that has had a focus on the Lordship of Christ over all areas of life. So like uh, any other good bookstore, uh, we have books on science and business and politics and sexuality and English I mean, you name the topic, and we try to find books that are useful and wise and Christian, if possible, in that area. And many Christian bookstores don't quite do that. So we're sort of known as being a little bit eccentric, sort of this broader vision of what Christian learning should be. And we opened it in a small town about 40 years ago. We did that because we used to work in the 70s in campus ministry. And I found myself wanting to nurture students to become disciples of Jesus And we called the phrase we sort of used was whole life discipleship, that your discipleship is not just sort of your your church or your seemingly spiritual things, but all of life, that you are in one life for the Lord. And so how you vote, how you shop, how you think as a student, how you think about recreation, I mean, your whole life is honoring God. And so uh, as Romans 12 says, you know, our very bodies are living sacrifices. So we tried to nurture students in our forming disciples in our own disciple-making process to encourage them to think about why they were in college, what their majors were, how they could honor God in their work and serve Him even as students, and not just by starting Bible studies and discipling other students and sharing the gospel as they should, but also by studying for the sake of the glory of the kingdom of God of relating their faith to the classroom, of thinking about their major in a, in a faithful, spiritually informed way. So we did that in the, in the 70s with the CCO, the Coalition for Christian Outreach. Um, and, and, and we finally realized that we needed to have a bookstore that sort of had that vision that could get those kind of resources, Christian books on engineering or science or business or education into the hands of young workers who wanted to honor God on Monday uh, in their work workaday world, but didn't quite know how to do that. Most churches didn't sort of talk like that. Even many campus ministries didn't talk like that. 
Um, and so we decided we would, out of this campus ministry experience of working with young adults, uh, that we would start a bookstore that was sort of about all that. So Hearts and Minds got started, and we have books on all those topics. And one of our great passions is helping young adults uh, live for the Lord in all that they do, every sector of life, but particularly in, in their professional life, in their careers and callings. You ask for why we get excited about the topic. To be quite honest, it is my sense that many adults, well-meaning, godly people who love the Lord, go to good churches but they don't quite have this vision that the kingdom of God is something to do with their majors or their, or their life in the work world. And so it seems to me that young adults are the ones that we really have to reach with this full orb message of the kingdom of God and the Lordship of Christ. Because once people sort of sell themselves to the company store, as they say, uh, to the corporate world, they begin to kind of adopt practices and beliefs that are shaped more by the, the workplace than by the gospel. And so it's almost too hard to talk to older people about this stuff, how to think Christianly and serve well in the workaday world, because they've already sort of lost the imagination to do that. But when you're talking to somebody that's 20, that's dreaming big dreams of the kingdom of God, and they want to make a difference, uh, and they're trying to discern what they're going to do with their lives, with their gifts and their talents, that's when it's really fruitful. So I get very excited, not just talking about these books, about taking faith into the work world, say, but helping college students do that in the classroom. I, I get really excited about that. Yeah, I love all of that, Byron. Thanks for just sharing all of that with us. You've mentioned a phrase a few times, uh, the lordship of Christ in every area of life. Could you talk a little bit about just what does that mean, the kind of the theology of that statement, if there's any scriptures that you kind of take that from, uh, just to make sure we're really understanding, what do you mean by that, the lordship of Christ in every area of life? Well, that is such a good question, and there's no one simple verse, but you know, the notion that Jesus is Lord is a central teaching of the church, and it's sort of one of the core commitments that you can't navigate around, you can't compromise on this. Christ is either Lord of all or he's not Lord of anything, and that he himself is the King of kings, the one who is the Messiah that brings the kingdom of God. Is, is really central to Jesus's own self-identity. He's fully God and fully human, so we know that, uh, that he's the second person of the Trinity and fully, fully divine, but the earliest church realized he just wasn't God, but he was king, he was ruler. And many of us understand and are so grateful for the sweet news that he's our savior, that he died so that our sins can be forgiven and we can be reconciled to the Father, that our sins can be washed away and be given a new life in Christ, the old way uh, put to death, and the new way coming in. And so certainly we're grateful that he's our Savior. But he's not just, ever in the New Testament, a puny Savior of just one little part of your life or of your soul or of your church. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so every knee shall bow, as it says in Philippians, that he is the Lord. Um, Jesus asked the disciples often, who do you say that I am? You know, there's that famous passage in the Gospels that's written in several of the Gospels. And, and he says, who do they say that I am? Like, and some say, well, you are a prophet or whatever. And Jesus said, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And the answer was, you are the Lord. And he said, yes, this was revealed to you from on high. The Spirit revealed this to you. In other words, the identity of Jesus as the King, as the Lord, as the Messiah bringer, as the true human that can get the job done. You know, he's called the Son of Man, but he's also called the Son of God. They use different terms for Jesus. But his emphasis of being the king or the ruler or the Lord that claims our lives, he says, follow me. So he didn't just die to save our souls and let us live our lives as kind of normal, but, but forgiven. Although that would be nice if we were just forgiven, but it's more than we're just forgiven. We are transformed to become followers of him. And so he says, follow me. And so that's what that means. To be a disciple is to be a, a learner or an apprentice to a master. And so this idea of the mastership or Jesus being the rabbi that we really serve and because he is the true God, that's, that's sort of some of the things I want to unpack when I talk about the kingship or lordship of Jesus. Yeah, that's so great. And it, even as you were talking, it made me think of Colossians 1, where Paul is, is talking about Jesus and he said he goes on this little, little, uh, 
kind of speech out of nowhere where he says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or rulers or dominions or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. You know, it keeps going and talks about the reason that anything exists is because the Lord is holding it together and that he rules over it. And so that trickles down to everything. You know, the reason that our majors exist is because the Lord has created them. The reason that math works is because the Lord is holding the world together. You know, so I think that that's so interesting. Yeah. We were chatting about this ourselves together uh, on the phone not long ago, and we looked at that exact passage. So I'm so glad you brought it up, Sarah. It is one of my favorite passages. It is actually that that middle part of Colossians 1 was probably a praise song that the early church sung. It's almost a poem. So it may have been one of the first worship uh, songs in the early church, and it's the supremacy of Christ over all things. Christ wants to have first place in everything. So the supremacy of Christ in all things, even the things on earth, is just such a central core teachings of the early church and of Paul's letter to the Colossians. I often say to students, like, what does it mean that Christ is supreme, that he wants to have first place in your major? Like, what does engineering or mathematics or special education look like if Christ is the Lord of that area? If it even makes sense because of him, like you said, math exists, it works, because Christ is the one that ordered the creation. That's a great mystery of the identity of Christ, that he is not just the king of creation and the redeemer of creation. He is the one through whom creation was made, as it says in Colossians 1. It says that in John 1, hearkening back to Genesis, where God himself says, let us make humans in our image. And so God is speaking to the second person of the Trinity, to Jesus, who helps make the world and call it into being. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things that are made are made through Him. So whether it's Colossians 1 or John 1, we have this high exalted view of Jesus as the Redeemer, but also He redeems the stuff because He's the one that made it in the first place. I, I love the verse, John 3.16, it's an oldie but goodie, and it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God loves this world. He doesn't hate it. And in fact, the Greek word there is cosmos, which means everything. It doesn't say, for God so loved your souls, or for God loved your church, although he does. But it says, for God so loved the created order, the whole cosmos, all things that he made. Well, of course he loves it because he made it and said it was good. So it's his world, and he died to buy, to buy it back. So this kind of cosmic scope of redemption that's in Colossians 1 is so helpful as students think about their major in the seemingly what we would think to be secular academy. Actually, the university isn't secular. Every square inch of it is God's. And if it's God's territory, because he made it, and he is the supreme Lord of it, and it only makes sense because of him, he holds all things together, Colossians 1 says, then the college student's task, those of you that are listening, your job is before God in the glory and power of the Spirit as disciples of Jesus to figure that out for your major. When you're in a classroom and your professor is lecturing, what he or she is saying may or may not be true, it probably is, but you've got to be discerning and say, what does God think of that? What do the scriptures say about that? You know, in Psalm 119, it says the scriptures are a, a light before our path. And the way a light works is you don't usually just stare into it. Uh, a preacher from uh, 500 years ago, father of the Protestant Reformation with Luther, John Calvin said the Bible is like glasses. They're like spectacles. It's not so much that you take your glasses off and stare at them. You put them on and see everything through them. And so a light before our path means that all our majors have to be seen in light of or through the lens of a biblical view of the world. So whatever the Bible says about something, that sort of becomes the lens or the grid, the spectacles through which we see math or science or business or politics or history or whatever. And so we learn a lot from the Bible in the broad sweeping scope of the scriptures that every college student needs to consider. This is so helpful for us, Byron, and I love that we're starting with this just foundational idea 
of the scriptures informing everything and us looking at the scriptures and kind of through the scriptures to see the world. Are there particular parts of scripture or themes in scripture about how our students can apply the scriptures to their majors or careers in the future? Yeah. So God declares this world to be his and good. We also know from a thin couple of pages into Genesis 3 that the the great epic story of the human race is that we're made good, but we're also fallen. Sin has distorted things and nothing as it was meant to be. So when people start talking about, I don't know, engineering going to solve all our problems, we know that the human heart is so fallen and life is so broken that no progress through science or economics is going to solve that problem. We are profoundly broken. So whatever you're studying, it's both good, made by God, whether it's technology or sexuality or, or, or the possibility of politics or business schools, they're good, but fallen. And those are two tensions that we kind of have to keep in mind any kind a college student is studying a topic. What's good about it from God's world, if we say it's part of God's world, then we want to affirm its goodness, that God structured something about it, and that it's messed up, that because of sin and idols, things are not the way they're supposed to be. So whatever we're studying, there's something sinful and distorted and wrong about it or the way in which we approach it. And then the third big point, I think, is redemption that Jesus is the king of that area, that he does love the world, that he is buying it back. And so if the supremacy of Christ is is redemptive and powerful and healing and whole, he can make all things new, as it says in Revelation, all things new. So we have this sort of good creation that is very messed up and fallen, distorted, and yet Jesus is straightening it out. And he's using us to help do that, to accomplish his purposes in the world. Uh, You may not want to be at college right now with the COVID thing. You may think your teachers are assigning too many books or something, but whatever it is you're studying, you're studying the beauty and goodness of it. And you're studying the sin and understanding with discernment what's wrong with it. And you're studying what difference Christ might make if he would use you to set it straight. Amen. That's so helpful. I love that framework. And as you're talking, I think the, the vision that you're painting for us is one that's very different from, I think, what we can tend to assume about our careers is like, oh, like, I'm just going to go to be an engineer or be a nurse or whatever, and I'm going to go to church and like, maybe I'll try to like talk to my coworkers a little bit about Jesus. It sounds like what you're saying is just a far more holistic view of what it looks like to be a Christian and follow Jesus in our workplace, in our majors, in in every area of life. Is that correct? You are so right, Caleb. I think many well-intended Christians have this sort of, uh, almost a disease of dualism is the phrase I call it, that we have this sort of sacred-secular divide, and we sort of assume there's things that God cares about. Um, Your spiritual life, reading the Bible, sharing the gospel and evangelism, and he does care about those things staying sexually pure uh, church life. There's sort of this limited side of life that is spiritual. And then there's the rest of your life that God maybe is sort of doesn't care so much about. It's sort of secular and you can sort of do what you want or, you know, you try to live right, but it's not really of first importance. And again, Hmm. when said uh, that he wants to be supreme over all things, hearkening back to Genesis 1, where he says all things are good, uh, there is no sacred secular dualism. There is no divide between... Sunday and Monday, between um, sacred and secular, between clergy and laity. We're all following God, and we follow him 24-7 in everything. Um, So as we seek God's kingdom, Matthew 6.33 says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Everything else will take care of itself. I sometimes ask people, what do you think that means? And and I've heard students say, well, I make a lot of lists. I'm like, well, where would it be on the list? Obviously, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And they say, well, it would be first. And and I'm like, okay, so then you check that off your list and you're done for the day. You've sought the kingdom through prayer or something in your quiet time in the morning, and now you're done? No, no, no. In Matthew 6.33, when it says, seek first the kingdom, I think that Greek word implies basic. Seek fundamentally to all that you do the kingdom of God. So in a certain sense, seek first the kingdom isn't even on your list. You get up and have coffee to the glory of God. 
You eat a nutritious breakfast for the sake of the kingdom. You call your friend to see how she's doing to make sure she got out of bed so she could go to class in time, loving your neighbor for the kingdom of God. You go to your first class and you study well for the glory of God for the sake of the kingdom. And, and then you take a break and, and call your mom because she's probably worried about you. And you're doing that for the sake of the kingdom because you want to bear witness to, to the goodness of, of your reconciled relationship with your parents. And then you go off to your next class and you have a conversation with your faculty member because you didn't quite understand something. So you stayed late and talked to, to, to the professor. For the sake of the kingdom, you're doing all this stuff as kingdom people for the sake of the reign of God, the lordship of Christ. And so seeking first the kingdom puts you back into the world. It doesn't take you out of the world. And it involves you 24-7 in a very, like you said, Caleb, holistic way. Yeah, that's great and super helpful. And I think the the divide can even continue into our calling or kind of life trajectory um, going into full-time ministry versus going and working in a normal secular job. And I think it can be hard for us as Christians to consider the high calling that we have to put all things under the supremacy of Christ and to have him be of first importance, but also live that out in these different ways. Do you have some thoughts on that? You know, there's a book called The Call by Oz Guinness. He's a smart, smart guy, one of the mentors in my own life. And The Call is one of my favorite books. And in that book, he shows uh, that in the medieval world, you know, back in the time of castles and all that stuff, in the medieval world, the only people that were allowed to use the language of calling or the language of vocation, that you have vocaria, vocation, uh, means to listen to the voice, to listen to what God wants you to do. The only people that used that word were priests and nuns and missionaries. So if you were called to be a priest or a nun, you could say you were called by God. But ordinary workers and business people and merchants and soldiers and sailors, uh, peasants, they never used that word. Martin Luther in the 1500s was the first person to use that word for ordinary, seemingly secular jobs of ordinary folks. Um, and they wanted to kill him for that. Later, William Tyndale, who's a guy that translated the Bible into English, Tyndale used it. They captured him and burned him at the stake. And there was about 10 reasons. And one of the reasons that they burned Tyndale is he dared to use the language of vocation for ordinary commerce, for ordinary farmers, for ordinary people. Uh, friends, I, I just think you need to know that people have died, Protestants particularly, but now Catholics almost get it more than Protestants. Uh, people have died over this belief that ordinary people dare say that they are called by God to their work. So if you uh, fall into the cultural assumption that, you know, thank God it's Friday. I don't even say that ever, T-G-I-F. Uh, that, that work is a drag, that it's just a way to make money, that we live for the weekend. Um, the culture doesn't really have a very high and dignified view of work. And many church people that still think only missionaries or ministers get to say they were called by God. But us ordinary people, we're sort of like second-class Christians. You know, we don't get to use that. But no, in the best of church history, in the best of the biblical stories, people are not just called to ministry or called to be a campus worker or called to be a, um, a missionary. But all of us should be able to say, I've discerned God's voice in my life. And I chose my major in light of what I think God wants me to do for the sake of his kingdom in our particular place. And that's based on our own sort of dispositions and our gifts and our interests and our passions. I mean, we're all called to follow Jesus. That's our primary calling. Jesus said, follow me. He didn't say be a banker, be a lawyer, or be a journalist. He said, follow me. So our primary calling is to be a Christian. But then we have what the Puritans called their secondary calling. And that's the vocation that he has put us in. And, and, and the young adult years are the years that many of us discern what that is. So I would invite the students that are listening to really start being prayerful and discerning about choosing a major, not just where the jobs are or what happens in a COVID world, what is the future going to look like. I mean, you have to be wise about those things, sure. But a guidance counselor shouldn't primarily say, okay, here's what your strengths are. You can make a lot of money being a nurse. There's a lot of jobs in healthcare. Go there. No, we should be inviting one another and holding one another accountable to be discerning what God has for us, what the Spirit is leading us to do based on the Holy Spirited gifts he has given us. We all have gifts, and it's not just gifts for the sake of the church, but gifts for the common good, gifts for our neighbor, gifts for our world. So what are the gifts we have, and how are we going to sort of translate that into jobs, into careers, into callings, into vocations? 
Um, and that's the way in which we have to think about college, I think. And too often we think about college as just a tool to make money or something to do to find a job so we can make more money. And, and I think we have this high and holy uh, way to, to get at this, this language of vocation and calling that makes college career choices so much more uh, rich and beautiful and I think rewarding. Yeah, I, I love that. I think when you and I had talked on the phone uh, planning before we started recording, you, you said something that just really resonated with me. You said something like the Lord has created us as a body and he's placed us in specific places to chip away at that darkness in that particular place. And I thought that that was just very helpful, even going back to the creation, fall, redemption. None of us can do everything. We're not going to save the world on our own power, but the Lord is redeeming things. And so he has put us in these little niches, these majors, these jobs, these communities to chip at the darkness that we find there. And I just thought that was very encouraging. And I'd love to even ask you if you'd be willing to tell the story, because I think sometimes we can think, okay, like after I graduate in my career, that makes sense. You know, I want to do this career in this way for the glory of God. But I think in the everyday college student's life, you know, we forget about our homework or we forget about even just going to class for the glory of God. And you told a story about a young man who was a Bible study leader, but you found out he was doing very poorly in his classes. And can you just tell that story again? Because I, I really enjoyed hearing that story. Well, that is kind of fun. And I don't think he minds me saying this because it's all true. And it's actually written up in a book now. Uh, one of my best friends is a guy named Derek Mellaby. And another really good friend, his name is Don Opitz. And they wrote a book for college students called Learning for the Love of God. The subtitle is A Student's Guide to Academic Faithfulness. Isn't that an interesting phrase, academic faithfulness? So we're called to be faithful to God, to serve him well uh, in our academics, in our homework, in our papers, in our grades, not for the sake of uh, keeping our parents happy or just looking fancy and getting good grades and being uh, proud of that, but rather to be faithful unto the Lord. And so this Learning for the Love of God book written by Melody and, uh, and Opitz tells the story uh, of this kid that I once knew. Derek did campus ministry himself, the author of the book, and uh, he worked at a college, and he had a kid that he was mentoring, a young adult that was playing guitar and led worship, and he ran a Bible study group, and he did a service project thing every week, uh, volunteering in the community as well. Mike was his name, and Mikey was just a great guy, one of these sort of people uh, that Sarah and Caleb and you and Disciple Maker Leadership just long for, students that are out there sharing the gospel with their friends and mentoring their other younger friends. They're doing it all, even Bible studies, being winsome. They're just great young disciples of Jesus. But the one thing he wasn't doing, Mikey was a political science major, he wasn't thinking about his major at all. He hardly went to classes. He said one day, Derek would bring him down to my bookstore, and he was buying books on ministry and prayer and Bible study. I said, dude, why don't you buy a book on your major? Like, buy a book on Christianity and politics. He said, oh, college would be great if you didn't have to go to class. Like, uh, it was interesting that he would say that. Many of us say that, that the extracurricular stuff is sort of what we live for. But Derek got a hold of Mikey, and I helped a little bit, and said, Mike, you have got to do your work for the glory of God. You have got to repent of this nonsense of you demeaning your teachers and your work and hardly doing good work at all, barely passing your, your classes, not even going some days, because you're too busy serving the Lord. If you're going to be a student, your calling is to be a student. This is your holy vocation. You're called to academic faithfulness. And so uh, one of the little stories we told him that sort of clicked for Mike was I said, you know, Bach, the great classical composer, J.S. Bach, um, signed all of his music, Sole de Gloria, only to the glory of God. But what's interesting is that Bach didn't just sign his church music that way. He was commissioned to do civic songs and political songs and entertainment songs and romance ballads. Whatever kind of song he did, he signed it only to the glory of God. I said, Mikey, I dare you to write your next paper and put real tiny in the corner, those three letters, only to the glory of God. And he said, I'll, I'll do that. But then we began to ask ourselves, well, what does it look like and mean to do a paper to the glory of God? It has to be well done. It has to be thought through. You have to do it with great quality. 
But also then you have to see what the Bible says about your topic. You have to inventory what the scriptures say and integrate nicely a biblical perspective, maybe not quoting all the, quoting all the verses. Your secular college students, uh, professors might not want you to do that. But at least out of your kind of orientation and your perspective in your field, being informed by the key Bible verses that are relevant to your particular topic. So I said, you got to quote some Christian books in there, you know, find good Christian scholars that are writing in your field and naturally show what God has to say about your major. So he did this major paper to the glory of God. Um, and it was fantastic. And the, the story is kind of odd because his teachers called him up on plagiarism charges <laughs> because they said, you could not have done a paper like this. We know your caliber of work and you're not that good of a student. And he said to his teachers, oh, you don't understand. I'm now doing my work to the glory of God. I'm writing this paper for Jesus' sake and his honor. And I am, uh, I've got some mentors helping me do that. And they could hardly believe it. They're like, who says a thing like that? Who talks like that? You're doing your homework to the glory of God? Um, so Mikey really buckled down and did a great paper. And his teachers not recognized it. They recognized that it was so good that they didn't even believe first that it was his. Um, so he had to explain to him what he was doing. All that set him on a journey of what we might want to call Christian scholarship. Of not just being a scholar who happens to be a Christian, you know, a nursing major who happens to be a part of the fellowship, you know, a follower of Jesus who just happens to be taking counseling classes, uh, a, a, a lover of God who just happens to, you know, be an engineer. No, we want to be a Christian engineer. We want to be a Christian nurse where the integration of your faith and your career are so deeply entwined and so shaped by the fundamentals of your faith that you are really able to say, yes, I'm not just a nurse who happens to be a Christian, but I'm a Christian nurse. And so that's the high and holy calling we have. But to do that, you got to buckle down and take your, your studies seriously. Um, and that's sort of where the rubber hits the road. Lots of people say, oh, I want to help chip at the darkness and push out the evil and straighten out the world and be an agent of change in the corporate structure or in politics or media. Someday when I get there, I'm going to do that. But the question is now, what is a young emerging scholar who's 20 years old and starting to think about her career in most fundamental ways? I mean, that's sort of what professors do. They profess. They tell you what they think is true about the field. And so you've got to think that through and determine with the help of others, older Christian leaders, maybe Christians in that field that are mentoring you from your home church, that you find out what is true and what is right and what is good and what is biblical in that field. And those ideas, those fundamental ideas have consequences. And so don't uh, kind of think, oh, that's just ivory tower, theoretical stuff. I want to get out there and change the world and uh, be salt and light in, in, in God's world in my particular career. To do that well, once you get there, you have to know what the heck to do, which means you have to learn to think Christianly and pursue academic faithfulness by taking your classes for the glory of God. I love how you're talking about kind of the implications of this idea and how it starts to play out for our students. And I was wondering, do you have scriptures that come to mind in terms of this idea of kind of how this plays out? in a real-life scenario in terms of following the Lord in every area of life? Daniel 1, Daniel is in a pagan empire, and the king wants him to do good work, and it says what he and his boys had to study, and they list their academic curriculum in Daniel 1, and it's Chaldean and all kind of occultic stuff. It's kind of some weird stuff, but Daniel didn't like put up a fuss and say, well, I'm not going to study that. He, he was going to study and learn what he needed to learn and be wise and thoughtful about it for the sake of serving God in the empire, but not of the empire. You know, at the end of John, there's that phrase about being in the world, but not of it. I mean, that's what we're being prepared to do, to go into every area of life and our particular callings and to be in that field, banking or professional sports or fashion studies or whatever it is. You're going into that field, but you're not of that field. You're of the kingdom of God. So you're going to be a kingdom salt and light and leaven influence in the world, but not of it. And in Daniel 1, he was exactly prepared to do that, to study what he needed to do. But at the end of Daniel 1, it doesn't take very long, where Daniel has to negotiate with the king some rules of the road. He said, I'm not going to eat the king's rich food that the king wanted him to have. The king is sort of trying to stamp out their Jewish identity. It already changed their names. 
uh, you know, you've heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are not Hebrew names. The king had already tried to re-identify themselves. Your college is going to want to do that to you too. Take away your faith and give you a new identity and say who you are, a Democrat or a Republican or a consumer or a postmodernist or a capitalist. They're going to try to turn you into something. But no, 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 you're going to be faithful to Christ and say true to your identity. And then Daniel negotiates with the empire and says, you know, let us eat our own kosher food. We'll be true to our diet as we feel we should. It's sort of a religious ritual thing. And see if we can't serve you well anyway. And the king fell for it. So already in Daniel 1, Daniel is navigating faithfulness in the midst of a pagan empire. And I think in a way, that's what we do at Babylon University. You know, we sort of learn to navigate how to be a faithful student without blowing off our grades, without blowing off our teacher and trying to insult them and say that they're secular atheists or anything like that. No, no, no. We're there to learn and to learn well from these wise professors. You're paying a lot of money to do it. So you learn well, but at some point you may have to navigate fidelity and say, no, as a Christian, like Mikey did, I'm going to think faithfully about my career. Yeah, I love those stories. And I think even thinking about as a student in your major, what would it look like to whether literally or proverbially sign everything to the glory of God and what opportunities that would open? You know, I think, Caleb, even you in media, I think you're a great example of this, that a lot of your media work uh, you know, you're designing and you're creating content and you're really thoughtful about, is this pleasing to the eye? Is this creating um, opportunities to enter into the gospel? I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, even off those stories, but I think a lot of what you do is really in line with this. Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's one of the most important things, um, both for people that are going into ministry and and even going into a secular field, because I mean, I've even worked in churches like as an intern where I've run into folks that are like, I do IT, but I just happen to work at this church. Like the the vision isn't really integrated in a very helpful way. Whereas it's like, I, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I work for disciple makers now and, and our IT folks are incredible in, in terms of their integration of their vision for how, um, how their work in IT is kind of reversing the curse and, and pushing yeah. back the darkness and also enabling our staff on campus to, to reach more students. And yeah, I think all areas of, of life. And I, I just love this holistic conversation that we're talking about and just the excitement you have for it, Byron, is this eagerness to see how is God at work and touching every single area? How is he holding all these things together? It It's not a question of, is it there or not? Uh, I think the Bible would tell us it is there. Like those mm-hmm. connections are mm-hmm. there. We just have to find them. And so I love um, your excitement about connecting students and others with those types of resources, helping them find those answers through your bookstore is, is super awesome. I find that college students sometimes are a little bored with their classes and some professors are a little boring. I get it. But, you know, once you have this sort of missional vision that your work matters to God, that we can say, thank God it's Monday, not just thank God it's Friday, that we are on a mission for God to figure some stuff out. It's an adventure. It's exciting. And God is going to use us no matter where we are, maybe even to bring great reform to the tax code or or, or to how schools work, even in this COVID digital age. I mean, we're going to think of new things about beauty or goodness or sexuality or family life or children. Like whatever it is God has given you a, a, a burden for, a calling for, um, you, God's going to use you in that area, maybe in big ways, maybe in small ways. But that makes your study so much more relevant and exciting. And so there's no reason to be bored, even if the material is tedious and hard, we got to pray and think and work and talk with our friends. I hope you each have classmates that can kind of talk about uh, and pray for one another in the classroom. Maybe you are trying to crack a really hard nut in a philosophy class and you're not kind of understanding, you know, some big epistemology word or something. Or maybe it's media and you're trying to figure out how we can sort of uh, avoid the reductionism of everything being only digital. Or maybe it's nursing, and you and you and you find that sometimes uh, you just don't have enough time in the day 
to study all the stuff you got to study and beauty with all your, um, with all your labs and stuff. And so you need to be praying for one another and praying for one another's papers and grades that you're getting and the relationships you're developing with your professors. I, I think it's really pretty neat to have a prayer partner in your major or a, a study partner that's a Christian in your field. And as you begin to sort of hold one another accountable to dig deeper in these areas in your own classes, it makes your academic experience in your college career that much more exciting and that much more memorable. And then people start looking at you. You know, there's that verse in, 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 uh, in Peter that says, always be ready to give an account for the hope that is within you. And that sort of presumes that people are coming around saying, what's with you? Why are you so hopeful? Why do you like this class? Why are you happy about this course that we all have to take and we all hate it? And you're like coming to class early and talking to the teacher. And it's not just to be get brownie points or to get good grades. Like you seem to be living your life as a collegiate with some other value system going on that gives you hope and meaning and purpose and joy. And they're going to want to say, what's with that? So if students aren't asking you, why do you love your college experience so much? Maybe you're not integrating the Lordship of Jesus into these areas. And if you are, I'm pretty sure other students are going to take notice. You're not going to have to wear it in your sleeve and be all pushy and weird about it. Like you're just going to naturally uh, show forth a curiosity and a joy in learning um, and a deeper significance um, in our bookstore. And this sounds like just a ploy to sell more books. And as a bookseller, <laughs> I suppose it is. But, uh, but I do think, we can use this phrase that some, uh, sometimes we talk about what, what I call double study. In other words, you've got to study everything like Daniel and Babylon. You've got to study everything really well so you know and can master the material your teacher's asking you to do. But then you have to develop a Christian perspective and read what Christian authors are saying about those things, what the professionals in media studies or engineering from a faith-based perspective would say, and master that material. So it's almost like to be a Christian college student, the cost of discipleship is that you've got to do twice as much work as your secular colleagues do. All they have to do is get a job. They just have to regurgitate whatever the teacher says. And if they get a good job, they'll go make a lot of money and good for them if that's all they want to do. But we are doing it for the glory of God and have a higher purpose and a higher calling to think Christianly in light of creation, fall, redemption, and all the rest. So we've got to buy some books and develop some friendships and write some extra papers with some extra prayer partners. It's almost, we, we have to do twice as much work. And I just sort of think that's the cost of being a Christian college student. If you're a serious disciple of Jesus, and a disciple is a lifelong learner, you are engaged in this, in this calling to take your faith seriously in college as a college student. So this learning for the love of God, uh, student's guide to academic faithfulness may be one of the places to begin. You know who else says this, by the way? Some of you know the, the preacher, um, John Piper. John Piper says this sort of stuff in a book that he wrote called Think. The subtitle is The Life of the Mind and the Love of God. And Piper reminds us that we're called to love God with all our minds. And so the very stuff we do with our, with our studies is a way to worship God. So I would say when you go into that lab or you go into that library or you go into that learning classroom or that seminar, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground because this is the way you worship as a college student. You're worshiping God as you use your mind to think great thoughts after him in light of what the scriptures say. Sure, we've got to study the Bible, but we don't just study the Bible. We study the test tubes. We do the statistics. We do the academic work. And that in itself is holy. You know, there's a really funny verse in Job 12, and uh, it says, listen to the fish, for they will teach you. Um, and I don't have any idea what that means, except that we study God's handiwork and we learn stuff. Uh, I don't know if you and disciple makers teach your students this, but you students should know this, that the, that the Bible says that the creation speaks. That's why Job can study it. You can learn God's will, not just by studying the word or listening to good sermons, but by doing your homework. You learn what God intends. The Roman Catholic folks call that natural law, and I have reasons I don't like to call it natural law. But the Roman Catholic tradition teaches that there is gravity is there because God put it there. 
So when you're studying physics, you're actually studying God's word over the creation. You know, Psalm 19 says, look at the heavens. They declare the glory of God. They speak day and night. So Psalm 19, I mean, it's just a poem, but Psalm 19 is God's word in poetry says that even the stars are saying something to you. It doesn't just say in Psalm 19 that the stars are pretty and that we can think about God because of the beauty. It says they speak to you. So the question is, it's like they're speaking in tongues. We don't know what they're saying. And that's the task of science, to study and figure out what the creation is saying, what's good and wrong, what's created, what's deceitful, what's good about it, what's bad about it. That is the task of the students, to pay attention, not just to the Bible and to sermons, but to study the creation itself. So whenever you pick up a, a lab tool or a computer program, or you're studying information science, or you're studying the history of Renaissance literature, whatever you're studying, that's holy ground. And that's the way we worship by studying not just God, but God's creation. And I'm not making that up. You know, Job says, listen to the fish. Psalm 19 says the stars are speaking to you. And John Piper in that book, Think, explores those very texts. So this isn't any wacky idea. This is just solid biblical Christianity that we pay attention to the world God put us in because he is not distant from that world. He's right there. And so paying attention to God and God's presence uh, in the midst of your homework, even. What a beautiful thing to do. That is beautiful. And yeah, I think you're right. It really expands our view of God's word and the wonder of his creation when we consider that who God is and who he is as the creator is very exemplified in the actual creation. And so as we study it, we get to learn more about him, which is awesome. Are there particular scriptures that come to mind as we talk about kind of the Christian mind and thinking about these things and, and transforming our minds in this direction that you're talking about? You know, when we talk about the Christian mind or having the renewed mind, as Romans 12 put it, it says the renewal of the mind. Um, there are two Bible verses that use the word theory, like theoretical um, they're the words that Plato and Aristotle would have used. So if there's any philosophy majors out there, you'll dig this. But there's two verses in, in the New Testament, and they're sort of flip sides to each other. The first one is Colossians 2, verse 8. If you're a college student, I would memorize these things. I would put them on little cards above your mirror. I would get them tattooed in your left and right arm if your parents wouldn't flip out. The first one is Colossians 2, verse 8, and it says, Do not be taken captive by theories that aren't of the Lord. That's my paraphrase. But look it up for yourself. It says there are fundamental theories that are not based on Christ, but are based on just this, the, the occultic world or something. And so don't be taken captive by pagan ideologies or theories that are not rooted in the Bible. Remember we said that the Bible is a light before our path and shines, and the creation itself will speak wisely to us like it says in Job. So we have to make sure we have the Christian mind by not being hoodwinked by false ideologies. So part of our job in Colossians 2 verse 8 is to make sure we're not taken captive by bad theories, bad ideas, bad professors. The flip side of that, though, is in 2 Corinthians 10 5. And it says, take every theory captive for Christ's sake, for the kingdom's sake. Uh, take every theory or philosophy or idea captive and put it to work for your service for the Lord. So those two verses, don't be taken captive by worldly ideologies or false theories, but take every theory captive. It doesn't mean you shouldn't study them, but you study them and then take them captive to the Christian mind, put them to use for God's purpose. That, that's kind of interesting to me as a manifesto for college students to use those two uh, both a negative, don't be taken captive, and a positive, take every thought captive, to use your mind well for the glory of God. Um, that's sort of part of what we mean when we talk about the mind of Christ or thinking Christianly. Uh, we've got a lot of resources at our bookstore that help us do that. There's a little booklet by Greg Yao, J-A-O, that's called Your Mind's Mission. But there's resources like that that help you be faithful to those two Bible verses. I call them the college student. Bible texts about the Christian mind. That's super interesting, Byron. I don't know that I've ever 
heard those two verses connected like that. And I think, yeah, it is super helpful for us and for our students in particular, as they're coming in contact with all different types of theories and concepts and ideas in their classes. Yeah, boy, it is interesting to me. You hear sermons about take every thought captive as if it means like lust or greed or something. Like if you're walking down the street and you feel lust or something like take that captive. Uh, and that's not what that verse is about. It's about ideas. It's about the world of philosophy. It's a word that Plato used, and only Paul used it twice, and those are the only two times he used it. He also, in both of those two texts, used the phrase take captive. You know, the Greek city-states would conquer somebody and then take them captive, and then they wouldn't kill them. They would put them to work building their kingdom. And so that's what happens when you're taken captive. You start building Marx's kingdom if you're a Marxist, or, or a capitalist kingdom if you become a devotee of Adam Smith, or when the postmodernist when you become taken captive, you don't just like let it go. You start building the wrong kingdom with those ideas. I tell people like if you're a psychology major and you've been taken captive by like let's just say Freud for instance, you could open a Christian counseling center in the basement of your church serving the poor but you're still building the kingdom of Freud because you're using his ideology and worldview to shape the counseling you do. So even if you're a Christian counselor, you may be taken captive by worldly ideologies because you've not followed that verse. On the other hand, that take a, a, a theory captive means, again, it's not just to get the idea right. Who cares about that? It's so that when you're working in the world, you're doing it well. You're being faithful to God, serving him well, because you haven't bought the secular ideologies or theories about media studies or whatever. So that's why I often push students to read real foundational stuff, more philosophical stuff. I think it's important to read the history of the development of your field. How did the early thinkers of these various academic fields in the 21st century, where'd they come from? Who are the primary thinkers in those fields? So that's a little harder and it doesn't quite have the sex appeal of like, let's go out and change the world for Jesus. But I think uh, being a good student and thinking about those two verses is really important. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Byron, for joining us today and for talking about these things. I feel like my my brain and my heart are full in just seeing a bigger picture of all these things. And I hope that for those of you that are listening, the same is true of you. So thanks so much, Byron. Uh, we want to thank everybody for, for listening over this summer. And uh, we'll talk to you guys next time. Thanks so much for joining us for this final episode of the Disciple Makers podcast for this season. We hope that you are as challenged and encouraged as we were through our conversation with Byron to put Christ first in all things and live in such a way that communicates his supremacy. As always, we have resources for you in the show notes with all the books that Byron mentioned in the episode, as well as a link to his bookstore where you can connect with him directly and find further resources on any topic you may be studying. So thanks again for listening. We really appreciate you joining us for this first season. We look forward to talking to you again next summer on the Disciple Makers podcast.